0: You cannot avoid being philosophical. There's one thing you need to be philosophical, and that's to be born. To be human (laughs) is to have a philosophical orientation. But you can do it well or you can do it poorly. And if you are unaware of your philosophical orientation, you are doomed to be doing it poorly.
1: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lighthart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a fantastic interview with Esther Meek. Esther will be the instructor for our 2018 Trinity course in August. This course is entitled Loving to Know, Introducing Covenant Epistemology, and it will be held August 13th through 17th at Beeson Divinity School here in Birmingham, Alabama. Esther Meek is the professor of philosophy at Geneva College, and her books include Contact with Reality, A Little Manual for Knowing, Loving to Know, which is an introduction to covenant epistemology, and Longing to Know, the Philosophy of Knowledge for Ordinary People. For more about our course in August and how to register, you can check out the link in the show notes that I've put there for you, or you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and head under Events and Courses. In this interview, Lightheart and Meek cover a lot of ground. Some of the topics include Meek's background, Michael Polanyi and his influence on her thinking, and subsidiary focal integration. We really hope that you enjoy this discussion, and as
2: always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart. I'm here with Brian Motes. And today we're delighted to have uh, a special guest with us, Esther Meek. Uh, Esther teaches at Geneva College in Pennsylvania, and uh, she is our guest teacher and lecturer for our Trinity Term course coming up in August. Uh, we're delighted to have her on our podcast and give uh, our listeners a chance to get to know something about Esther and the work that she's been doing in philosophy, and particularly in epistemology. So, welcome, Esther.
0: Well, thank you. It's good to be
2: with you. Wonderful to have you. Uh, we had a, um, uh, we were able to uh, get you down here to Birmingham last year briefly, but uh, because of a, a family emergency, uh, you had to head back home very quickly. So, we're we're delighted that you're coming back and visiting us again in August, and uh, we trust that we'll get a full week and uh, that we'll have a chance to. <laughs> Uh, to get to know you and uh, to hear what you have to say to us.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to that, too. It it was really um, frustrating (laughs) to not be able to follow through last year, but just really glad that it just has taken some patience, and here we are coming up on August again. So I'm looking forward to it.
2: Wonderful. I'd like to start, Esther, if I could, with uh, asking you a little bit about your uh, your personal background, how you got into philosophy. Uh, in a couple of your books, you mentioned that you had questions when you were young. Uh, you grew up in a church setting, but had questions that you found uh, that uh, philosophy provided some answers for you. But uh, could you recount a little bit of that background for us?
0: Yeah, happy to. And that's exactly right. I I uh, grew up in a, a home that was involved in a church that was Bible-believing, and, and um, well-taught about the Bible, and um, but uh, what I recall very painfully is when I was about 13, so um, oh, that would be five decades ago, is that right, or four decades ago? <laughs> how Well, I can't add, but in any case, um, just asking these questions that I didn't seem to have answers to. I knew what I was supposed to believe about God, but my question still was, how do I know that he exists, and then this other question that it seemed must be completely crazy was, how do I know that there's a world outside my mind? So um, I, at the time, I thought those questions were sin. I didn't tell anybody about them. I figured Jesus wouldn't like it <laughs> if I if I didn't if I doubted his existence, you know. And and the other question just seemed. Crazy, but I just felt like that was the thing I most needed proof for and uh, had no proof. It just seemed that I was certain of the ideas inside my mind, and just for that reason, they were blocking reality. So um, I didn't know they were philosophical questions, um, but I, I believe that I found that out when I was in high school. At that point, my mother was working at a Christian bookstore and brought home all the new books to read, and that Mm -hmm. included the new books by Francis Schaeffer. Mm -hmm. And so I followed my mother's red pencil underlinings through the God who is there, and um, uh, that was (laughs) a heroic task, as you might realize. (laughs) But uh, in any case, I came away with the, the realization, first of all, that my questions were not sin, but they were philosophical, and second of all, that responses to them over the the cultural epochs had shaped whole epochs, um, across the disciplines. And that actually fired my uh excitement for interdisciplinary studies, humanities, and uh seeing how ideas shape things in all across the disciplines and in a single era, so um, I'm very proud and excited that I now get to teach that sort of thing at Geneva. So uh, that that was my figuring out that these were important philosophical questions. I still, I'm sorry and a little abashed to say, didn't realize that you could actually study philosophy. And um, so I went off to college as a chemistry major, and um, it was a uh, after my freshman year, that I heard, uh, a student of Jim Greer, who was teaching philosophy at Cedarville College, uh, waxing excitedly eloquent about all that he was learning in his philosophy classes. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was a three hour conversation. And, um, it was, it took me just a few hours beyond that, including the night's sleep, to, uh, make up my mind that I was going to change majors and change colleges and go study with this man. And, um, you know, that's without ever having met him or or anything yeah. like that. So yeah. so I really look back on that, that uh, 12-hour decision as something that just really changed my life and the direction of my life. And I just... I have never looked back <laughs> from from that point on. I have always thought I didn't have um whatever the intelligence it would take to do that, but it seemed to me that this would these were the most important questions and whether I had the intelligence for them or not it was the most important thing I had to do. So I felt like this moral obligation that I had to pursue those things. So that's
2: yeah. that's kept me yeah. going.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: You, you you describe your thirteen year old. Uh, you were asking philosophical questions as a thirteen year old, but you were, you were also had already adopted a philosophical position. You already had an answer to those questions, or at least there was some implied position in your belief that you could only know for sure what was inside your head.
0: Absolutely. Um, the reason I had that was not that I was crazy or, or that I there was something odd about me, though I will confess there's something odd about me, but <laughs> but I, I had that not because of any sermon at at church or anything like that, but because it's in the water. I feel that mm. everybody in modernity is in a position to have that outlook, and they might not have, they might not sense it at age 13 or whatever, but but it is rampant in modernity. And that's really what makes it that I feel like I've got something to say and offer (laughs) to a lot of people that even though, you know, that I haven't even known, um, but I can pretty well be confident of some of the implied philosophy that, that uh, is default for them too.
2: Right. So it's, it's less a matter for people that they uh, of. uh, teaching philosophy as making explicit uh, assumptions and thoughts and ideas that are already philosophical, making those explicit so that they can be interrogated, challenged, uh, repented of, what, whatever's needed.
0: It's kind of like the, uh, the way I think of the cultural mandate in the Bible. Uh, you can't not... You're hardwired to influence or shape culture. The question is whether you can do it well or poorly. And the same is true of philosophizing. You cannot avoid being philosophical. There's one thing you need to be philosophical, and that's to be born. To be human (laughs) is to have a philosophical orientation. But you can do it well or you can do it poorly. And if you are unaware of your philosophical orientation, you are, you know, kind of doomed to be doing it poorly.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So I, I believe that you have used um the the uh the term therapy to describe uh, what uh, what philosophy can do. So it's less again it's less a matter of teaching uh, teaching a discipline or a subject matter and more uh a matter of uh healing of the soul and of the mind. am, am I am I right that you've used the word therapy to describe uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So
0: chapter 1 in loving to know is called why we need epistemological therapy. Right, And um, you uh, will get to this probably uh, farther on in the interview, but I argue that uh, we should think of knowledge not so much as information, as um, we should think of it as transformation. And um, the thing is, if you think of knowledge as information, which is a philosophical, epistemic position, right? Uh, and yeah. then you're trying to criticize that and revamp that well giving more information is not the thing that's going to do it (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i you know i've just known i couldn't write an epistemology an epistemology textbook and uh without uh just kind of betraying the very thing that i was trying to say so, I, um, you'll also find out, or, or we'll talk about this, that I think of knowing as involving a lot that you don't put into words, and that mm. includes, uh, your body formation. And, and so you can think of a habit or an outlook or an orientation to the world as almost more bodied than, uh, something that you would have as information in your mind that you would reason from. And so if you're gonna, fix your epistemology, it's got to happen at that level, which is going to be bodied. And mm-hmm. and so you need a reorientation it's, and that's not going to be at least an exclusively verbal one.
2: Right, right. Or exclusively intellectual. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, as you're describing that, you're touching on uh, some of the themes in uh, the subject of your doctoral dissertation, the subject of a, a number of your writings, uh, the work of Michael Polanyi, and uh, some some of the ways you're describing the way uh, knowing i know are i don't know indebted to or at least overlap with what polanyi was doing how did you how did you come to polanyi uh, how did you come to know about him and to to make him a a topic of study
0: yeah well uh i was a uh phd student at temple university And I was attending um, a little Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, and I was at a point where I was wondering what I would do for a dissertation, and I was looking for something that would allow me to stay as general as could be and as interdisciplinary as could be, because I felt... felt, uh, I, lo- I loved the interdisciplinary thing, but I also felt that part of what I would be, I could see myself as being called to, was helping people who had had no exposure to philosophy get their feet wet because I found that philosophy revitalized my faith, for one thing, but also it's, it seemed to be a matter of being faithful to being human, <laughs> you know. But uh, so I was looking for that in a, in a dissertation topic, and at church, a young man was attending who I believe uh, had spent some time at Labrie and had had the rec- recommendation of Michael Polani's personal knowledge from Francis Schaefer. Um i'm not sure about that, but that's my recollection but anyway, it was this young man who said I could borrow his copy of personal knowledge and so when I read it, and then when I looked at secondary literature, all of it was Polanyi and this subject or that subject or this subject and and uh so that struck me as a something I was looking for um mm-hmm. in the way of a dissertation plus i've always loved science so so uh i was intrigued with that so and that but then th- the one thing that caught me that i did my dissertation on and i guess this is a really important part of the story i'm the little girl that was looking for making contact with reality right <laughs> and i and i wasn't sure of of the world outside my mind well polani this premier scientific discoverer who turned to philosophy as an afterthought of a brilliant scientific career um had all laced all through his work just it's everywhere in his work um the claim it's it's almost like uh he tosses it off as an oh by the way he doesn't really reason for it but what he says is in discovery you know you've made contact with reality when you have a sense of the possibility of indeterminate future manifestations So in other words, uh, when you make contact with reality in a discovery, you don't have confirmation at that point, but you have this sense of a broad range of future possibilities. And it's almost that indeterminate sense. It is that indeterminate sense that at that moment uh, testifies that you've made contact with reality. Well, that was the only time to that point and I can't say I've heard many people since then talking about how you know you've made contact with reality which was mm-hmm. just the thing I needed to know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that was what I wrote my dissertation on.
2: Yeah. yeah. So is is this a is this a fair paraphrase of what you're saying that uh, you know you've made contact with reality when you are when you encounter something that exceeds your uh, your capacity to comprehend to uh, to to grasp in in whatever you know in in a kind of theoretical system is that is that part of the part of the sense that you're talking about?
0: I would say that's part of it, but um, I might uh, I might uh, drop the theoretical system word, okay, um, <laughs> just because it might be a little misleading. But mm-hmm. a, a good example of this in everyday life is. Um, and we've all had this experience where you're getting to know somebody new and you have this sense that they could be a friend. Mm-hmm. Right. That there's all kinds of possibilities to a deepening relationship. Right. Right. So, like, I you know, I remember a student saying to me about another student of mine. He said, I'd like to get to know her better. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, he ended up marrying her, <laughs> but at that moment, yeah, what he we was what sensing was future <laughs> possibilities.
2: Right, uh, rather than, as opposed to, uh, you, you might have a you might have a position where contact with reality or some kind of realism involves a kind of closure, rather than an opening up of possibilities.
0: Yes. Uh, uh, well, I'm actually going to. F- uh, follow a lovely quote from Hans Urs von Balthasar on that, and also uh, it's, this is in DC Schindler's work. Also, you get both closure and opening, so you mm. have this great aha moment, right? When when mm-hmm. uh, you put things together in this pattern that's just irreducible, irreducible to what you thought you were working with, <laughs> but yeah. then you uh, it it also has this sense of of. Of uh, indeterminate future prospects too, so it's indeterminacy on both ends. Um, right. I'm sorry, I forgot the question you asked me.
2: Yeah, that that, that answered it. So it's both closure and also there, there's a kind of closure. There's a kind of what you're describing is a is not a it's it's a it's a delight. Yes,
0: snap, yes, yes, yes,
2: yes. Seeing pieces snap into place. It's not frustration.
0: And don't right. give me the stuff about the joy is in the journey. I'm not saying that to you personally, Peter.
2: <laughs> to a lot of people
0: out there, you know, don't I tell was, me the joy I is in the I wasn't journey. You to. want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm all about the adventure. But, but you know, the adventure is to, you know, find whatever, the pearl of great price or or whatever. And then once you come to that point, then the rest of reality begins for you, you know, it, but it's, it's, it's just this wonderful sense, just a wonderful sense of, uh you know, we can go beyond the kind of ah, pointillist word contact to say immersion. When you figure out how to ride a bike, all the world comes to you in bike paths. It's like that, <laughs> you know, it's like, the next, the next bike trip that you can take, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and and we live in our possibilities, and we love that. So that's not frustrating. That's just sheer joy.
2: Yeah, yeah. Your comment about um, uh, the uh, not not uh, celebrating the the joy in the journey it puts me in mind of Chesterton's comment that we we keep an open mind in order to close it on the truth, um, rather than just having it a a perpetually open mind. We have it for a particular purpose.
0: I was going to say, I think with our defective epistemology, uh, like our information idea of epistemology, we have also uh, two-dimensionalized reality. And we've tended to think that when we come to the solution, that that we will have, you know, we'll have reality in a box, you know, mm-hmm. and have it all sewed up. Well, that's, so not the case. And one of the things that I've realized is reality is just incredibly inexhaustive and mm. richer than, than we could imagine. So to start to think that way about reality is, is really um, kind of a therapeutic thing too. It's healing mm. to us so that, mm-hmm. so that you can see that realities is wash in possibilities and ever new things. I mean, the abundance of reality is is just um, our joy
2: <laughs> yeah. um, wh- one of the things that you uh, talk about when you when you're discussing polanyi's work is the importance of discovery in his treatment of knowing, uh, focusing on discovery in a way that other epistemological systems or epistemological philosophies don't
0: yeah. As I said about him biographically, he was a premier scientist at the beginning of the 20th century in conversation with Einstein and other greats. And his lab was uh, the sort of place that people came from all over the world to apprentice in, and multiple uh, Nobel Prize winners came from his research lab, which is absolutely significant and um, that includes his own son who has a nobel prize so mm-hmm. um just an incredibly brilliant man for whom discovery was his job mm-hmm. which i think is just so significant that was like what he was paid for <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right so so um I, I say that, you know, let me set that to the side just a minute and talk about the standard, um, accounts in philosophy of, of, of science. And when I say standard, let me say common, not normal, as my mother would say. So, so, uh, the prevailing story in philosophy of science has had a lot to do with offering, uh, epistemological accounts of scientific knowledge that was thoroughly justified. And so Mm -hmm. people in the conversation have distinguished between the context of explanation and the context of discovery and all of philosophy of science has gone on in the context of explanation. Well, that's that will not find you new items in the universe. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so, um, what you need is an epistemology, Polanyi would say, that makes sense of what you're doing when you're moving not toward something that you're trying to explain, but something that you're trying to find or discover. Mm-hmm. So it has to be an account of knowing that has to do with not yet knowing. How do you come to yeah. knowing in the, in the first place? That's what discovery mm-hmm. would be. And mm-hmm. so, th- again, that, that's, uh, that little conversation of discovery, uh, about discovery, uh, make frames and makes even more strategic the the uh claim that he was making about how you know you 've made contact with reality
2: right right yes right do you know anything about the family of origin because his brother Carl uh was the economist who wrote um, oh you know the very very important <laughs> is
0: it called the great Transformation?
2: the great transformation that's right about the uh, the beginning of the uh of modern capitalism, I just wonder what kind of do you know anything about his upbringing. What kind of what kind of family? Did
0: well, I can tell you with? a little, but I also wanted to uh, highly commend to you the Polanyi Society and uh, some of my colleagues there. Uh, especially notable is Phil Mullins, who's president of the society and is a walking repository of just about all there is. <laughs> Know about Michael Polanyi, so so, uh, and is very generous <laughs> with that. So so, uh, and that also there's a a uh, kind of an a, official biography of Polanyi's uh, life too, which is consultable. Oh. Although we all feel that um, there's much much more to be said. But in yeah. any case, here's a couple of things that I think were significant, um, and significant to Polanyi himself. Uh, there his the home where he grew up was in Budapest. His father was a railroad magnate, and his mother was given to having all the intelligentsia of the golden age of Hungary in her yes. home for salons and so mm. little Michael would sit on the stairs mm. and listen to these conversations, these free willing intellectual conversations. And so there's a sense in which Polanyi has always had this presumption that, uh, there would be a society of explorers as he calls it. So a group of convivial friends who worked together to, to, um, in conversation, uh, advance knowing. So that picture of his mother's salons, I think are, is just really, really important. And, um, soon after, um, uh, he was born. I think he must have been maybe nine or ten. His father's, uh, business suffered a, a, uh, a tragedy. You know, a, a rain washed out a whole bunch of, of, uh, railroad track. And, uh, he ended up, uh, you know, having to, uh, pay everybody back out of his own pocket, which made them pretty poor people. Um, as a result of that, but soon after mm-hmm. that, uh, Michael had a great interdisciplinary education and and uh, was um, you know, early on just attracted to being a
2: scientist. So yeah. the the description of his um, of his home with his mother's uh, the the salon setting. Tell me if this is correct. I don't I don't know Polanyi very well. There's a uh, prevailing idea that you had the the lonely scientist in his lab discovering things um, through a, a rigorous application of the scientific method as opposed to what actually takes place, which is a, a convivial atmosphere of um, explorers searching together for certain kinds of things. And it sounds like there's a is, that a, is that something that Polanyi emphasized in his work on philosophy of science, that there's a social uh, setting for scientific activity?
0: Yes, absolutely. and uh, he was saying it before a whole lot of other people were um sure. once we get to subsidiary focal integration though we have to say that all of that for him is subsidiary, which um uh, I don't know when when I explain that that'll make more sense but uh incredibly important I guess what I'm trying to say is uh he would never and should never be taken to be saying that truth is a function of a community. Right. Right. So so you, with that qualification absolutely. Yeah. And um the other thing I that uh, you should know about how his labs worked especially in the the uh later years before he turned to philosophy is he was a person given to brilliant insight. He was a genius. And then, but then, when he would have these ideas, uh it would take his helpers in the in the lab. It might take them two years to figure out how to blow a glass tube of the specifications required to perform the experiment to test out the idea <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so he would have these you know this this genteel way of breezing into the lab and checking everybody's work and suggesting something and then going off. And, and then uh, actually, <laughs> I don't know if you know that he, he also had an economics phase on the way to a philosophy phase phase. And understand. he and Carl did not see eye to eye. Wow. So that's been, uh, that's in the literature of the Polanyi society too. Right. Really interesting. There was a lot of um, actually hurt. I think on on Carl's part for uh, some of the ideals ideas that Michael put forward at some point you know he took the he kind of took it personally uh and and they're not they don't hold the same
2: economic position so
0: but I'm not no. an economist so please ask somebody else about that
2: <laughs> I I was uh, reading about uh, I think it was an article from the New Atlantis recently it was I can't remember what uh, scientist it was talking about and somebody was describing his genius and distinguished between geniuses, uh, two different kinds of geniuses, one being the kind of genius who just has more of what you have, but you could imagine with a little bit more of what you have, being able to do what he does. That's one kind of genius. But then there are the magicians who just have this have these un, un, uh, unrepeatable insights that... Uh, everyone else, every normal person has to take, you know, like two years to figure out uh, what they said and whether it's true, but they just have this kind of magical insight into, uh, into reality. It sounds like Polanyi was a magician.
0: I, I would vote for that.
2: <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh subsidiary focal integration, uh, and promised to explain that, uh, that's, that's a, that's a key phrase, uh, in your work. It's something you're drawing from Polanyi, um, what what is it what what's involved in that
0: okay here we go well first of all uh polanyi isn't as widely known as he should be but when he is known he's often known as make, having made a distinction between tacit and explicit knowledge and talking mm. about tacit knowledge well that's not particularly helpful as a way into into polanyi um mm. It's better to uh, get at this idea of subsidiary focal integration, and I find that the people that appreciate uh, that that get and appreciate Polanyi are the ones that understand what he's saying by the subsidiary, and the ones who don't get or appreciate Polanyi are the ones who don't. Okay, so it's kind of a make or break with regard mm-hmm. to understanding what Polanyi was proposing. All right, so here's how it goes. And you can think about it's really actually um you can start by thinking about perception and then thinking about skills like riding a bike. And um as I talk the best thing to do is <laughs> think of your own examples <laughs> and see how this works. So, so um with one of the things that uh really uh Polani thought about in getting going on this subsidiary focal integration is your two lines of eyesight, which, um, you know, we, it takes two eyes, <laughs> you know, and these two lines to focus on something. And what he, what he said is actually, you know, if you were to single out those two different lines of sight and focus on them, they were, they would be contradictory. But Mm -hmm. what happens instead is you subsidiarily indwell them. You don't even think about them. And it's precisely in that subsidiary indwelling that, uh, you see a three-dimensional pattern. So that, that's in perception. And every perception would be this way that you would be, uh, you would have this from to structure and part of the from, uh, would be your, your body working right? And mm-hmm. and there'd be other things you'd be relying on, too, like um, the words of an authoritative guide, um, also uh, your sense of the situation, whatever you bring to the situation, when you're indwelling it subsidiarily, that means you're relying on it to focus elsewhere. So if you think of bike riding, for example, if you focus on keeping your balance on a bike, mm, you're in trouble, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'll be like in the cu- in the gutter <laughs> but mm-hmm. but where your focus is, and this drivings this way too, you know everything's like this uh your focus needs to be beyond you, and then what you need to be doing is somehow subsidiarily uh integrating that's his word, putting together the things that you're relying on to attend somewhere else, so from to subsidiary focal proximal, distal, uh, looking from and looking at. You know, you always have these two levels and they're always connected by integration. And your job is not to eliminate the subsidiary. If you eliminated the subsidiary, well, you wouldn't be riding the bike either. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. The point is to get really, really good at the subsidiary. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the bike example really is helpful I think to everybody to realize that your sense of keeping balance, keeping your balance on a bike, which is so critical to just doing it is not something that you can articulate, but it isn't subjective. You can actually Mm -hmm. improve it Mm -hmm. or you can be worse at it. um, If you can improve it through practice, but it's, it's still subsidiary right mm-hmm. uh you mm-hmm. could you could even take lessons there could be a teacher that might make you better at it by temporarily focusing on for example where your foot is on the pedal that's that's sort of a thing but the point of it is not to focus on your foot on the pedal um once you've done that temporary destructive analysis then you want to climb back into your body and get on that bike and go so um so as you get more trained Right, you're you're expanding the inarticulate, and um, that that increases your attunement, and um, then there's all these possibilities. How am I doing? So, uh,
2: <laughs> the is the increasing attunement. Is that um, would you say that that's an expansion of knowledge?
0: I would say subsidiary focal integration is the whole package with regard to knowledge, okay. Okay. and yes, so yes.
2: Right. So in a in a sense, that you you're saying you're expanding you're expanding the scope of what's inarticulate by becoming more tuned to your bike riding, or I would I always think of musical examples because I know that I have no musical knowledge in my head. It's all in my fingertips. Um, mm-hmm. um but the it's it's almost uh, paradoxically, the the better you know, especially thinking about how to do something, the the wider the field of things that you can't explain. <laughs> The the wider the field of of the inarticulate, inarticulable.
0: Mm-hmm. And a, a good teacher is one who is able to say sentences, especially in music, or in sports. They have to say sentences that make your body figure out how to do things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So, I I once was blessed with a, a very short involvement with ballet as an adult. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. My girlfriend got me into it. But uh in any case, we had a, an excellent teacher <laughs> and uh-huh. uh she she uh w- made a couple of comments that that just made my like they fixed my body. That's how I felt them. So uh one was um uh this had to do with balancing on your toes, which was uh physically impossible for me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Until the day that she said, pretend you're sucking yourself up through a straw. <laughs> okay. And from that point on, I could balance on my toes. <laughs> is that great? So a good teacher, you know, especially, you know, in our area of philosophy or theology, where, yes, you do have to articulate your argument, right? Your thesis and your reasons. Uh, you know, you have to, if you're going to write a book, you've got to articulate But you have to make sentences that are both the argument. You have to make sentences that are the argument. And you have to also make sentences that help the reader feel the argument. Right. right? That's what makes a good writer, I think.
2: Yeah. So what what she's doing, what your ballet teacher is doing at that point is uh, trying to describe what it feels like to do it right. um, So that when you... Well, and not
0: even describe it. I mean, Polanyi calls that maximic language, maxims. And okay. if you're going to convey or connect some a, a student, an apprentice, with the subsidiary, which you you can't uh, as the teacher, you can't articulate the subsidiary thoroughly. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So you actually depend on the student getting inside your body, but also getting inside your maxims mm-hmm. and and indwelling those, and that uh, that's how they they uh, get trained. Mm-hmm. So, knowing, knowledge is inherently unformalizable. And why, why Polanyi, can I just say this? This is a little historic thing too, and it's really, really important to understanding Polanyi. What really, uh, drove him into philosophy was, uh, communism. <laughs> So, so uh, the Stalinist era, like in the nineteen thirties, everybody in Britain, for some, which is where he was by this point, having escaped from Berlin on the eve of of Hitler's uh, coming to power. But in any case, in Britain, Polanyi couldn't figure out why why everybody was so excited about socialized science, and f- for his for him as a scientist, he thought this is this is like the death knell of science because you need liberty uh, to be able to discover, to to be set free to discover. And the reason you need that, and you could never program what somebody's supposed to discover for the sake of the state. The reason you need that is that um, you have to accredit to be a good scientist. You have to accredit what you can't put into words And that includes not only Mm -hmm. the subsidiary, but your skills and powers and your, your assessment. So critical verification depends as much, uh, it depends as much on my personal, uh, responsible involvement and commitment (laughs) as discovery Mm -hmm. does, right? So Mm -hmm. all of this is just incredibly important as, as far as Polanyi, the discoverer is concerned. It's Mm -hmm. critical to doing science well. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry that was a side, an aside, and no, I can't but, remember what it was an aside from.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, what, one of the things that um, one of our obsessions at Theopolis is uh, liturgy and and trying to encourage Christians to be more um, strive to be more biblical and more thoughtful about the kind of worship that we do. But what you're describing is uh, uh, seems like it's applicable to uh, a, a kind of liturgical theology and similar to what uh, uh James K A Smith has been talking about in his various books on liturgy.
0: Well, let's start with the first part of that and I would say you have you have an exact match. This is the this is the epistemology of liturgy. <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. And it's the epistemology of Bible reading too because mm-hmm. uh, and liturgy obviously is is a, a lot Bible. But but what you need to the only way liturgy makes sense is to have an epistemology where you've got subsidiary bodied formation. Mm-hmm. So yes, if you're gonna if you're gonna have your epistemology fixed to subsidiary focal integration, then that gives the appropriate value to these things in the Christian life that uh, we might have, you know, been thinking of as practices, but that word can still have. Uh, too much of the explicit about it, right? Mm-hmm. Not that you. Um, I, I always say you forget the subsidiaries to your peril. You 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 can't go on automatic pilot, but uh, mm-hmm. or you you know uh, y- there is a, 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 I call it a virtuosity that you can grow or an intentionality mm-hmm. in your in your bodily indwelling. But that's just what liturgy is. So where you you know I say to my students, if you're a chemist. The periodic table of elements should not be merely hanging on the wall of the lecture hall. It needs to be in your body. You need to be wearing it. Mm-hmm. Right? And and then seeing the world from it. And that's how liturgy and scripture works too.
2: Right. Yeah, if we could turn uh to uh, your own work a little bit more directly. You've been been talking about Polanyi, but you uh you've used the terminology of covenant. The covenant knowing is the uh, one of the phrases that you've used, um, using a biblical term to describe that. What are, you, what are you trying to capture with that terminology of covenant?
0: Well, the thesis of my covenant epistemology is this, that we should take as a paradigm of all acts of coming to know the interpersonal covenantally constituted relationship. And what I have in mind here is if you think of the knower, and the the, the uh, partner there is the yet to be known. <laughs> okay, so you trying to figure out how to grow healthy rose bushes in your front yard. <laughs> okay, so it's you and the rose bush. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the knower yet to be known relationship, and what I'm saying is, uh, uh, we sh- I'm proposing in covenant epistemology that we think of that using the paradigm of a of an interpersonal. Relationship and the word covenant comes in, uh, both because covenant in scripture is relational, but also it gets at the pledge component. So uh, you have to promise to love, honor, and obey your rosebush if it's going to self-disclose to you, and and that's how reality works. So, so and I learned this from Annie Dillard. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about stalking muskrats, you know, she was she was binding herself covenantally, losing her dignity, uh, you know, <laughs> sitting still for hours on end and not even scratching her nose. That's the covenantal language. <laughs> and that's not with the guarantee that the muskrat's going to show up. Yeah. When the muskrat shows up, she still feels this in, immeasurable grace <laughs> that she saw him. You know, but but so you what pledged in knowing does is it's an expression of loving to know. So love comes first, and then you give yourself in pledge to what you do not yet know, and and then that invites reality graciously to self-disclose. So that gets to, to the lovely. Uh, lovely doctrine of how um creation is is the word of god it's it's his uh revealing it's his gracious self disclosing so of course in epistemology you ought to go with that
2: is that right. that that what you were asking yes yes so the so the um you're not you're not just being poetic or metaphorical when you talk about the self disclosure of the rose the rose self discloses right. because it's a creation of a self disclosing god
0: yeah. But, but I honestly, um, I, and that's absolutely obvious to a Christian believer, mm-hmm. but I think uh, any, any uh, person who doesn't yet know Christ and loves rose bushes uh, talks and acts the same way in their best moments of knowing the rose bush. So mm-hmm. I think covenant epistemology works whether you're a Christian or not. It,
2: yeah, and the reason it works is because, in fact, the, the rose is self-disclosing.
0: I, and I think, I think this is biblical, too, but, but uh, you know, the thing about contact with reality, you know, making contact with reality and how you know, well, I, what I went on to say was, you know you've made contact with reality when reality contacts back, or you realize that it was contacting you first. Hmm. So I really, really think the Bible says the rose bush is trying to get me to know it. Mm-hmm. And I and I also feel like I if I love my rosebush, in that act, I am not only uh, graciously receiving the disclosure of God, but I'm causing Him immense delight.
2: Mm. Yeah, and I think He's
0: so. easily pleased.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Praise God! Right. <laughs> So, And then you can plug back in all the pliny stuff we were talking about where um, the, your, your contact with reality, with the Rosebush, the reality of the Rosebush is opening up all these future possibilities. Uh, and uh, in part, that's a matter of all the possibility, all the new possible ways that the Rosebush might disclose a, a creator to you, as well as the Rosebush dis- disclosing itself.
0: Yes, but I have to if I can add a qualification there because Protestant believers uh struggle with this uh for uh you know a whole pile of history philosophy that I'm not gonna do right now but and uh, couldn't do as well as some other people, but we are wrong to uh think that the rose bush is only about God mm. because God made the rose bush to be a rose bush mm-hmm. and to to we we've got to love it for itself and i think that that's the unique christian uh and maybe the only the christian way of seeing the world you know that this this place has a derivative but intrinsic value right mm-hmm. so so i think that we protestants tend to say Oh, we've got to look for secret spiritual meanings in the rosebush mm-hmm. to be religious about it. And I want to say no, no. That if you do that, you have denigrated the rosebush and you've denigrated God.
2: Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you. I, I was. Uh, I, d- I. would want to see the two together, though. So the the more deeply you know the rosebush or anything else in creation, precisely as the rosebush, it's still. That's contact with God because, it's, because it's, it is a word of God to you.
0: I agree. I yeah. agree.
2: Um, one, I guess one last thing uh, before, we, before we close. Um, I think some of your examples that you've used have shown that your way of approaching these philosophical questions is uh, very down-to-earth and existential. The subtitle of your book is uh, Epistemology for Ordinary People, A Philosophy of Knowledge for Ordinary People uh so um i I wonder if you could discuss a little bit about w- what value you see in uh raising these questions trying to address these questions in terms of uh, ordinary believers in churches uh, wh- Why do ordinary believers need to think about these things and what what value is it and how could churches encourage um believers to do this more seriously
0: mm. well With response to the first one, I would say much is at stake. Um, and it's at stake philosophically. We live in modernity, which is, uh, intrinsically an anti-philosophical age, which means it's living a falsehood (laughs) because you can't not do philosophy. And there's other very damaging, uh, contradictions. Uh, that are just endemic in our era, and our obligation is to bring the gospel <laughs> to this place. Well, there's a lot of a lot of work that needs to happen in the way of addressing the the prevailing ideas in order for the gospel even to be heard. And here I'm just repeating what Leslie Newbegin told us 25 30 years ago the west cannot even hear the gospel why because something stopped their ears and what stopped their ears is modernist epistemology yeah. so if you want to be heard and if you and if you want the gospel to go out <laughs> right and if you want people to be fully human and instead of instead of dehumanized all of this is going to take addressing this right mm-hmm. so right now for example for your website, thank you very much for the invitation. I, I've got this series of posts I'm calling Seeking Integration in a Fragmented World. We mm-hmm. as humans in modernity are in pieces. We're in despair. We're disconnected from reality. We don't even trust reality. Right? And, and, and so all of that needs to be addressed just to be human. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is so, so much to do. And, and, um, I, I'm going to say something that connects back with the last comment I I made. All of us who love Jesus are um, passionate to talk about things spiritual, and we do that at church, and we have a high priority on that. But the trick is that that can hide from you your need to fix some philosophical things. You need to fix them even to hear what the Bible is saying about the gospel. And and because we live and we breathe the waters of modernity, we Protestant Christians can have zero sense of that. And so when I get a chance to teach students for an entire semester, right, this, I, I, and these are people who love Jesus and they're like 18 or 20-year-olds, you know, I say, mm-hmm um you know a little warning you're going to want to go spiritual on this but uh try to withhold that and stick to talking about riding your bike because mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. going to help your spirituality is to fix your epistemology with regard to your bike with your mm-hmm. your golf game your football yeah. you know whatever your art you know all of these mm-hmm. things need fixed at the ordinary level and then once you've gone through the epistemological therapy and then you come back to your Christianity, it's going to be truer to what it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So somehow, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, there, there's no short fix for this, no quick fix. You can't just like, you know, have a sermon series on it or, or a Sunday school class. It's got to be something like any sort of habit that's got to be worked through. And it's hard. It's going to be hard, but I think it's really, really important. I do, uh, there's one book that comes to mind as we have this conversation, and I love this book, but oh my goodness, it would be a challenge. But I see in this book like uh, a whole church program for 10 years, and the book Hmm. is by David Kettle, who was a successor to Leslie Newbegin, and it's called Western Hmm. Culture in Gospel Context. And then, um, let's see. subtitle is "Towards the Conversion of the West." So you can hear the New beginningian uh, mm-hmm. thesis there.
2: Yeah. But
0: uh, the first hundred pages of the book is his uh very thick uh ex- explanation, uh, uh, like, of his theory and And it is polonian, I mean he talked you mm. take subsidiary focal integration and it becomes basically the dynamo of your conversion um mm. but then part two. He's got 10 conversions towards the Christianization of Western culture, and they have to do with all different areas of life. And I, when I wrote a review of this, I, I imagined, you know, you could read the first 100 pages every year <laughs> as a church <laughs> and then tackle one of those <laughs> mm-hmm. this year <laughs> and number two next year and, and then, uh, you know, work it out like that. Well, that's a long regimen for a church. But that's really important i i mean i I think there's hope in in this approach in epistemology Polanyi subsidiary focal integration augmented to the interpersonal and covenant epistemology i mm-hmm. i hope i I have hope of cultural change there there's within it the mm-hmm. the uh potential for radical healing, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. means I' got a job to do for as long as I live. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and the more we can get on on board with this, you know, the the better it is. But I do think yes, it it would take a long regimen, but hey, how long did it take, you know, your 6-year-old to learn to ride a bike? Just going back and talking about bike riding. Right and getting people talking about that is that's the thing that I think fixes people's defective epistemology faster. So if I have mm-hmm. 45 minutes or an hour with somebody, I'm going to, you know, I actually am not going to talk about covenant epistemology. I'm not going to say we love in order to know until I fix epistemology by teaching subsidiary focal integration and getting people Mm -hmm. tracking with that.
2: Riding their bikes again.
0: Yep. (laughs) So, uh, you know, actually I was toying with this as I was looking over my notes for uh, coming down to be with you for a week in August, I can envision that we might have a profitable session playing Frisbee (laughs) (laughs) and talking about subsidiary focal integration or something like that, just something bodied that we can just be together having, you know, putting the terms on the terms on on the right things and kind of reorienting our knowing by playing Frisbee.
2: Yeah. There's a big quad available so we we have the room to do it, <laughs> used it before. we we had a yeah. uh, we had an architecture course and uh, one of the seminars um, the instructor sent everyone out wandering around uh the campus looking at different buildings and trying to imagine mm-hmm. uh the church that they would build if they had unlimited resources and they had to they had to put it in the
1: paper and actually draw it yeah they had to
0: they had oh to least,
2: wow <laughs> Well, Esther, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to chat with us today. We're very much looking forward to having you down in August, and uh, thanks for the preview.
0: Well, you're so welcome, and it's mutual. I'll look forward to being there, and I hope that this has been a help to people who listen to you. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.